Hello again, welcome back to the Manchester United podcast. Sam and Maisie here. If you've not already switched over to the official United app to listen to our podcast, you're missing out on being able to watch our episodes in full for free. So you should definitely do that. Because often watching is better than listening if you have the option. At least have the option. Uh, we're continuing to bring some of our classic episodes from the archives while we take a little break over the summer. This particular episode was filmed in a restaurant. Ooh, remember those guys? Restaurants. Restaurants, what's one of them? Yeah, great, aren't they? Open again now. Um, Maisie, you're with me today, but you weren't on the actual podcast. Helen isn't here, and Helen was on it. It was when we sat down with Darren Fletcher, who, um, when we did it, I was... It's going to sound like a stupid thing to say. I was stunned at how insightful he was. He's a great lad, Fletch. Really is. And do, and do you know what? More than anything, I'm so glad now Ollie's took him on board yeah. to do the club. Technical director. You know, he's been crying out for somebody like that. Yeah. So, sorry, I'm just looking at Tasker. He's got a cat. Yeah, he's got a cat walking all over his laptop. Jesus. Um, yeah, Fletch. Great lad. Mm-hmm. I, I say that about a lot of people, but Fletch is one of the genuinely nicest lads you could ever meet. And um, I thought it was very underrated as a player. As a players player, you would want him in his team. Great lad. Also, just a really nice guy. He always comes and says hello on a match day. He'll always walk down and say hello to us all and stuff, doesn't he? Do that, does he? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Really nice. And as you say, he's very, very knowledgeable and yeah. loves the club, which is more important than anything. You know, he has the ambition to, to succeed and he did that on the pitch and now he's hopefully he's going to do that off the pitch. Do you like that we've now got um, a sort of core of ex-players in the set of like Ollie, Michael Carrick, McFeelan... Fletcher, yeah. obviously. Yes, absolutely. I think when, I mean, this is no disrespect to David Myers, and, but when he first came in and he removed the backroom staff, who had, listen, coming to Manchester United isn't easy. And I think you all always need people at the club who have been at the club for a while. And I thought that was a mistake by David Myers. But all he's now rallying the troops, rallying the lads around, and he's got a team behind him now that, I'm sure, and I'm, I'm desperately hopeful that we, you know, over the next year, 18 months, we're going to be very, very successful again. Yeah, that'd be great, won't it? Um, well, there you go. We've spoken about how good it is to have Darren Fletcher in the club. Here he is talking about his time at the club previously. Darren Fletcher, thanks for joining us. Hi, nice to be here. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Nice. How's your day been so far? Been quiet, went for a quick haircut and uh, joined you guys and ready for this um, podcast you'll love this when you walked in and I, I stood to the side of you I was like he's got a really sharp haircut did you think yeah, that I genuinely thought that but you yeah. didn't see it though that would have been a nice comment. Well, I thought it might have been weird if you'd walked in I'd just gone Darren great hair really good hair I would have appreciated it okay well it does look great thanks yeah good uh, how do you usually start a day nowadays uh, a lot different to when I was playing so yeah probably a little bit more of a lie-in and um, try and find something to do uh, boredom's definitely kicked in while I'm not playing anymore are you going to the gym or exercising in the mornings to get you up and out for the day? I went through that period where I didn't, but now I'm definitely, mm-hmm. yeah, I need I need that stimulus of training for the mind, for the body, for everything. And it definitely is a kickstart to the day without a doubt. And mm-hmm. um, Haley is trying to join me for like couples gym sessions, which I'm struggling with, but you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm accepting it a little bit. <laughs> right, I uh, should say before we start, we are in San Carlo's restaurant. So if you can hear some background noise, like some plates and stuff clattering around, uh, it's because we're in here. We've just had some pasta, which was lovely. Very nice. Uh, Darren, how was your bruschetta? Very nice, thank you. Yeah, lovely. Awesome. Really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, it looked nice. Um, and also, Maisie's, Maisie's not me- here. He's Mr. Maisie. Yeah, yeah, he'd be gutted. <laughs> I'm taking it personally that the fact that I'm here, he, he, Do you know what? he didn't want to be here. I can't believe he's not here for you at this one. Yeah, and also because you said when you were a, you were a, like one of the trainees, he would give you a lot of stick. Maisie used to terrorise the young lads when we walked through the uh, physio room. Yeah, that was your daily grilling. But it was character building, I like to call it. To be honest, it was um, it was all done in in good spirit, and it was his way of testing you, welcoming you. And um, yeah, just a bit of character building, and uh, I really enjoyed his abuse every morning in the in the physio room. One of the funniest lines from his podcast was, "Everyone's a victim in the changing room." That just sums him up, doesn't it? It does, and that doesn't matter <laughs> who you are, how much you've been signed for, where you come from. You're a victim to David May. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah. Even Paul Scholes, who nobody really says anything to, out of sheer respect, Maisie would just be absolutely <laughs> hammering him. Yeah. <laughs> Right, let's go back to the start then. Talk us through childhood, grew up just outside Edinburgh. Yeah, big family just outside of Edinburgh in a place called Mayfield and loved it. Best childhood, playing in the streets, kids everywhere, playing football non-stop. Uh, my sister running to call me for to come in for dinner. Not Still got to score the winning goal. So yeah, it was a proper, you know, exciting, out playing constantly childhood. I loved every minute of it. Your love of football, did that come from your dad? I know he's still a big, he's still always checking the strand of our results, isn't he? <laughs> he is, yeah. <laughs> but did that mostly come from him then? To be honest, not at the beginning. He didn't force me into football. Um, he's a big, um, you know, he's from a farming background. He's agriculture work. So I was, I played with tractors till about the age of five and knew every tractor under the sun. My dad would teach me all about tractors and things like that. The joy of football actually came from looking out when I was only allowed, when I was younger, I was only allowed to play in the back garden and all the other boys were past the garden fence almost. So my initial love of football came from just getting outside the back garden fence to better freedom into the real world. And then from there, once I started playing football with a few of the older boys um, on the estate, that was it. I never looked back. And from the moment that I took the interest in football myself, then obviously my dad, who's a massive football fan, um, was there for me every step of the way. And the biggest influence on my career, without a doubt, on the every step of the way. And the advice he gave me constantly was fantastic and pushed me in the right ways and educated me on do's and don'ts and everything. And, uh, you know, my mum and dad's influence on me, my dad from the footballing point of view and my mum from the how you are as a man, how you are as a person, all these qualities combined together was a massive help in my life. Obviously your team growing up was Celtic. Yeah. Did you have an English team that you supported? Not necessarily one. I sort of like loved English football, but you know, there was, you were drawn, to, I was always drawn to clubs with Scottish players. So I liked Everton for a while because yeah. of Duncan Ferguson, things like that. And then you've got Sir Alex Ferguson, who's manager of Manchester United. So there's your connection there where you're like, you know, the biggest best club in England is managed by a Scotsman so you know there's a pull to there but when you're in Scotland it's a real goldfish bowl Scottish football is like the be all and end all and English football is almost like a guilty pleasure that you don't really tell people about <laughs> yeah so, don't have a team in England yeah no. don't have a team in England you know I'm Celtic fan or you know Rangers like yeah but everyone loves the Premier League and it was always great to watch all these fantastic clubs but not necessarily supporting a team am I right in thinking you were at Celtic as a as a young player and left to go to United? I was actually, there's strange rules in Scotland about signing, so I reluctantly signed for a Scottish team because from the age of 12, I'd started coming down to Man United. So if I'd signed for a Scottish team, I'd actually would have been prevented from doing that. So I actually played for a number of Scottish teams, Celtic, Rangers, Hearts, Hibs, enjoyed all of them, all with different challenges, went to train with all of them without actually signing. Because if I'd signed, I wouldn't have been able to come to an English club until I was 16. 
And for me, I wanted to play in the best league in the world and, the, you know, and wanted to come to England, especially to Manchester United, where I'd be going every holiday, Christmas, summer, Easter from the age of 12. So although I played for a lot of Scottish clubs, I never actually signed for any of them. So how did the move to United come about then? Yeah, so playing for Celtic Boys Club in Edinburgh when at the age of 12 and um, a famous Scottish scout, Andy Perry, God rest his soul, seen me and invited me down to, to a trial at, at, at Man United at the age of 12. And I remember getting on the train with this man I'd never met before. My mum's obviously panicking because her boy's, you know, leaving, getting on the train with a stranger to go to Manchester. Um, but when you when you meet this guy, you realise how much of a gentleman he is, and you know an absolute legend. Somebody Alex Ferguson had a lot of time for him, respected his opinion on players. Um, he actually scouted John O'Shea and Michael Stewart as well. So even though John O'Shea played for Ireland, it was Andy Perry who first seen him. And I always remember after my first trial game, it must have went really well because after the game, they whisked me straight up to meet Alex Ferguson. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, I must have played all right in that and game. And my dad wasn't there. No, my dad oh, wasn't no. there. So. And he's obviously working at a time because it's just during the week. They whisked me up to meet Alex Ferguson after this game. So there is a picture out there where I've got a blue Man United away kit. That I got a blue and white striped away kit that I got for my birthday. So obviously did have allegiance to Man United. Yeah. I didn't just buy it for that trip. Put this on for the photo. Put this on for my mum. Put this on for the photo. <laughs> yeah. Make a good impression. No, it wasn't like that. I genuinely just had it. And there's a picture of me and Alex Ferguson with the age of 12 after my first trial game. And... And yeah, from there, I knew Manchester United liked me and it was just a, a case of waiting for me finishing school so I could join the club. So is that, were you 16? Is that when you first moved to Manchester full-time and were always about? I came actually early. I came in 2000 when I was still 15. It was a few months before I joined 16. I actually got um, to leave school earlier in Scotland because we do our equivalent of the JCSEs a year earlier. I was actually going to join in the summer and come a whole year earlier than everyone else my age group. Um, but my my little sister had just been born so my mum wanted a little bit of bonding time so I stayed for until she was about eight or nine months just a little bit longer and then uh, maybe my mum felt was a little bit too young just didn't want to let me go but eventually in January 2000 um, I joined the club full-time training as a 15 year old which is is not the done thing I was still technically maybe in school in Scotland but if you get a job basically you, the school allow you to leave so the fact that I was had a professional contract from the age of 17 and I was actually technically going to a job. They allowed me the, you know, the, the privilege or the, the dispensation or whatever word you want to use to, to go to, to Manchester United. And in fact, just later on, a few months later, you were actually supposed to be with traveling with the team when you were 16, isn't that right? Yeah. But tell us that story, what happened. Yeah, so as you a would have broke a record, I have to say, as well, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, I would have been the youngest player to play for Manchester United. So at the end of that season, very early I started playing for the, for the reserves and actually doing quite well in the games, playing against top-class players, playing against Everton in midfield who had Paul Gascoigne. This is back in the day when the reserve football was, you know, it was really full of first-team players, a mixture of, you know, 19, 20-year-olds in the reserves and, and five, six first-team players who hadn't played. And playing against Liverpool, against Jamie Redknapp, uh, Robbie Fowler, Titi Kamara, uh, Bjorn Abate at fullback. So, and I was doing really well in these games as a 16-year-old. And just before the last game of the season, we went away to play Antwerp's first team. And again, I played really well. So off the back of it, Alex Ferguson put me in the matchday squad for Aston Villa for the last day of the season. United already won the, week, won the league. And there was rumours that I was going to be on the bench and possibly make an appearance. But the fact that I was still registered as a schoolboy in Scotland, um, the rules prevented me from doing that. Whether I would have played or been on the bench remains to be seen. There was just rumours of it at the time. There was a strip with my name on it with Fletcher 44. 
and I travelled with the team and was around it. But for me at that moment, it was just a case of, well, it's not happened now, but it's, if I keep going, it's going to happen sooner or later. What I didn't know was I break my foot that summer and I might end up being not playing for about 18, 19 months. So my, my debut doesn't come till another three years later. So, you know, that was a really strange period from going from potentially making your debut at 16 to not making it till 19 and basically being injured for a good part of two and a half years. Um, was a was a was a tough journey. Really I was just going to say that must yeah. have been a really really difficult time as well when you're away from home too. The reason I ended up being out for that long was from my own fault with a broken foot, trying to rush back too quickly. Never been injured before in my life. My first experience of being injured, I didn't know what to do. When you've potentially been United's youngest ever player and you knew Sir Alex played players in League Cup games, you're always thinking about you know I want it to be now. I want it to be now and. My foot was still sore when I'd be out for eight, ten weeks and I'd come back and re refracture it. And I did the same thing three or four times and it was just sheer naive and stupidity really, but just desperation to get back. And again, I'd never been injured before, so I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how what my body was telling me, the signs my body was telling me. And the consequences of then being out with the foot, you, you rush back, other parts of your body break down. So, and I was really physically not developed either so the club had a policy of just really focused on my physical development for six to eight months and months and then eventually I got my first team debut. How do you think that experience shaped the early parts of your career once you did get your debut and did start playing? Do you think you gained an advantage from having that time because I suppose you could think about things more or do you think when you look back at it that really did slow you down and maybe you would have played an extra 50, 60, 70 times? There's two schools of thought. I don't think I would have been in the team at that point. I potentially would have made my debut sooner and probably would have picked up a few appearances. But there would have been, I definitely probably would have had a loan spell at the likes of Antwerp or places like that. It probably hindered my technical development, without a doubt. But mentally, it probably made me stronger and more determined and more robust to, to, to make it and to seize the chance when it came. So I see it from both sides, really. I do feel like I lost out on a lot of technical development. But... It probably built the determination and the resiliency and that, you know, desire when that opportunity came. I was probably more ready for it physically as well. And from the moment of making my debut, I pre pretty much stayed in the team for the remain. It was the end of one season, but from the beginning of the next season, from a little bit of luck and a few injuries and to a few players, I pretty much stayed in the team from that moment forward. So it worked out quite well for me. At the start, when you did make your debut and for those next few months after, you were in different, used in different positions yeah. as well. Did you find that difficult? I found it really difficult because my first six months of my, all my games were played in, as a right winger, right midfielder, and I'd never played that position before in my life. So I'd always been a central midfielder. If anything, I played a little bit on the left as a kid, but I'd always been predominantly a central midfielder, never really played any other position. And now you're playing for Manchester United's first team under the scrutiny of the world and you're being asked to play right wing so not only are you making your debut you're trying to learn a new position and it, and it did take me time but my biggest thing was I always went with the mindset of impressing two people Sir Alex Ferguson and my dad and gaining the trust of my, my fellow first team players and I did that by working as hard as I could covering for them trying to do the right things and recognising didn't try and showboat or do anything fancy or do anything out of my capabilities understand that the people in the club in the dressing room know I'm a central midfielder playing in the right wing maybe fans and pundits and that didn't realise that but I knew the people that mattered realised it so my thing was just about supporting and helping my teammates and, and not letting anybody down really and and and, and enjoying the, not moaning about it I'm being given the opportunity to play for Manchester United get on with it it's like when people say winning players player of the year is often 
you know, much more important to that person than winning, obviously important to win fans player. Yeah. But as you say, getting the accolades from your, your fellow teammates and your manager is just probably more important. Without a doubt, and I think that's something that sticks with me is, again, I've, I've got an instruction. I've only have to... Alex Ferguson set out the team with the tactics and the instructions. That's the person I have to please. He's the manager of the club. He's the one who picks the team. And gaining the respect of my fellow players who are world-class players, people I admire greatly, and getting a well done from them after a game means more to me than looking at the paper and somebody giving you a five or six because they're the guys that know what you've did. They know that they understand, you know, they understand football. They understand how what you've did, how you've sacrificed yourself maybe. So for me going throughout my career, I'd like to think that the players I played with respected me and realised that I was a team player and focused on trying to help everybody and trying to help the team win rather than focusing on myself. I think people will be surprised to hear that you felt uncomfortable playing on the right wing because certainly like I remember watching and everybody always talked about how brilliantly reliable and versatile the likes of you and John O'Shea were. People even say now it's such a shame because you don't get those players that can slot into any position and do a great job. Why is that? Why do you think you were so adept at falling into different positions? And when you look at other players and people will say, oh, they haven't got those players. Why do you think people reference players that can't do that? Because I, th I feel like I had a good understanding of the game and I realised that, again, I was there to, to do a job almost. And I think that I understood different positions on the pitch and was willing to not try and be somebody I wasn't. I think that was the biggest thing. And sometimes that comes with, it takes a little bit longer to get recognition for that. Knew there was maybe a reason why Sorauts played me on right wing. Maybe it was to double up on an opposition fullback or I could almost tuck into central midfield a little bit and allow somebody on the left-hand side to play a little bit higher. So there's all different reasons why. And again, we never mumped and moaned. A lot of players get played out of position and their mindset's wrong from the first minute. So they're, they're not going to have a good game. And they're almost, some players actually purposely play bad so that they might not get put there again. And I'm not Who? afraid to say that. I'm not going to say Come a name. <laughs> but no, I've seen that. I've seen some players literally go, almost go, well, this is not my position, so I don't want to be here again. And I never did that. I gave it 100% wherever I was asked to play, right back, centre back. John O'Shea the same. John O'Shea came through as a central defender, probably hadn't played much as a full back. And I think that's an easier transition, right enough. But at the same time, gone with the job in hand and realised what a privilege it was to play for Manchester United. We were the biggest club in the world and we were part of becoming a winning, successful team. And, 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 and we just, yeah, we just manned up and gone with the job, really. Simple as that. So that's it. If you want to be a versatile footballer, just get on with it. Just get on with it. You know, you know, accept, accept your role. Do the best you can. Give 100%. Obviously, have a good knowledge of the game and learn as you go along. In the end, I actually started to enjoy playing right wing. It took a lot, it's not a long time, don't get me wrong, but I learned the position. And once I learned the position and once I learned to play the position with my attributes, I actually became quite effective and quite enjoyed it. Didn't want to go back to midfield then? No, like no. that. <laughs> I was desperate to go back to central midfield. But you've got to remember, you're looking at central midfield, you've got Paul Scholes, Nicky Butt, Roy Keane, you know, Veron was there, you know. New signings are coming in. There was abundance of talent, but you want to go. And, you want to go and compete with the best and be against the best. And maybe in that position, you had to wait for your chance. But you knew when those chances came along, you had to seize it. What were the highlights for you when you think back to the like your debut season and getting in the team? And did you ever just catch yourself on the pitch and think, "This is it. I'm doing it." You can go back to first and last game. Really, debut is always a massive highlight because that's what you've worked your whole life to do. You know, and to walk out on that pitch to play for Manchester United in that stadium. You know your mum and dad's sacrifice, all the coaches have sacrificed, the amount of work that's gone into me walking on that pitch is incredible. The dedication and sacrifice for myself as well, all the effort 
to, to, to have that moment. And then it's about going and taking that moment, you know, and that's the next part of it. You know, it's easy getting that moment and then being like, oh, now I've made it. No, you're a long way from making it because you only make it when you, you know, you've played for a number of years for Manchester United and you've got to seize every opportunity you get. And then to end my first season starting the FA Cup final, you know, my debut season and to end up being in the team for the second half of the season, starting the semi-final against Arsenal and playing well, and then to ultimately start the FA Cup final um, and winning the only trophy we won that season uh, at Cardiff against Millwall was like a dream come true, you know, an, an amazing end to a de debut season. Yeah, because you got into the first team in 2003-2004 season, but it was four years before United actually won a title again. Yeah. It must have been difficult those years to Alex, almost a victim of his own success for winning, obviously won the FA Cup, but what was it like in those years leading up to winning that Premier League title? For you personally, your first one? Well, there's no doubt you recognise the fact that you've just got into the team. Um, Cristiano had just signed, Wayne came the year after, we were young lads, and the club haven't won the league, and all you've known is Manchester United win the league. And I think that we were up against some fantastic teams though. I don't think maybe the level of teams that I'd been around before because my first season was the Arsenal Invincibles who didn't lose a game. The next season's Mourinho's um, Chelsea teams who won the league back-to-back -back and almost took the points level to a new to winning the league to uh, closer to the 100-point mark, which hadn't been done before either. So the challenge was laid down to everyone, to Sir Alex Ferguson, to the Manchester United team. And it was a real difficult period because the club are used to success and, and, and this isn't the norm. And then you do start looking at yourself thinking, God, I've, I've come into the team now and we've not won the league for three years. And then, so that's why that first league title in 2006-2007 was massive. And then we went on there to have another dominance and years of success. But I think it was just a case of everything, really. A little bit of a rebuilding of the squad with new younger players that needed a bit of time. And secondly, Manchester United and Strauss Ferguson and the club rise into the new challenge of Arsenal and Chelsea, who took the level of what it took to win the league to a whole new level. And we, we responded to that challenge. In the middle of, of those years, there was, of course, Roy Keane and his infamous MUTV interview that we are reliably told has been destroyed. <laughs> now, I've, I've not seen it. I don't know exactly what was said, but apparently there was a team meeting and you all watched it and that he singled you out. Did that happen? How did you feel about it? Because that's the captain of Manchester United in a position that you want to be playing. And he's talked about it recently. Do you feel like it was fair? Well, first things first, the headlines that Roy Keane watched the game and give a, an analyst view of the game. So some of the words he used were in reference to an action in the game. Yeah. So for example, if he was talking about somebody's defending in that moment, he'd call it lazy defending. The headline in the paper was, Roy Keane calls that player lazy. So I think they had a lot of been misconstrued from it. From me, I seen it as what he said was me in instances in the game in terms of like that wasn't good enough for me and he was completely right. And Roy, it was Roy Keane challenging me as Manchester United's captain and it was something I was used to in the dressing room. But the, the long and short of it is I knew Roy Keane liked me and that was his way of, of showing that he liked me was because he knew I was cap capable of more and wanted to challenge me. And he would say, yeah, he would actually say himself, yeah, I was, and in that meeting, yeah, I was a little bit harsher there on Fletch, but that's because I like him and that's because I want him to do well. So for me, it was no problem at all. But at the same time, I can see why Sir Alex Ferguson had an issue with the interview. It's the, the, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. It's not as bad as people think, but at the same time, a manager sometimes has to 
make a decision based on what he thinks best for for the good of the team. And it's something that hung around with me for a long time, the fact that Roy Keane didn't like you or Roy Keane didn't rate you. And for me, it was the complete opposite because I knew that Roy Keane really liked me and challenged me and was hard on me with 100%. But that was his way of you know making me a Manchester United player, manning up. And the personality and the person I become and the leader I became was off the back of that grounding and that schooling. Was it frustrating that people would think, oh, well, Roy obviously doesn't think Darren's going to make it, doesn't think Darren's any good, because I suppose that would get to some fans and they might then think, well, Roy doesn't rate him, why should we? And that's what happened, but at the same time, that still hangs around now. I get people coming to me, oh, Roy Keane, what do you think about Roy Keane? And I'm like, I love Roy Keane. <laughs> my dad, Sir Alex Ferguson and Roy Keane, the three biggest influences on my career, the people who helped me. The great thing about Roy Keane is, Roy Keane says 10 things to you. One of them's classic Roy Keane, where he has a go at you and lets you know and has really harsh on you. The other nine times he gives you a compliment, but nobody hears it or nobody wants to remember that because it's not a good story to tell. And that's the way I've always seen it. Roy Keane was fantastic with me. Walking off the pitch beside Roy Keane and him saying to you, fantastic today, son. You know, I could play for another 10 more years with you beside me in midfield. Nobody hears that. It makes me feel like a million dollars. And the confidence I got from those words from Roy Keane massively outweigh the handful of times where he had a go at me, and rightly so, because my levels or my standards weren't that of a Manchester United player as a young lad coming through, which is, which is completely normal. says more about you as well, because he knows your personality. You don't need that big ego around no. you, somebody praising you and bigging you up, that's not you is it? No. You're very down to earth and he yeah. knows that you are capable of taking the criticism so it's actually a bit of a compliment in a way because he's not going to he's not going to uh, criticise somebody who can't handle it as you say is he? Not without a doubt and I knew that and I always seen it as somebody who liked me, who was challenging me, who was almost say, almost trying to build not the next Roy Keane but that sort of mentality that yeah. that's what it takes to play for Manchester this United this is our character this is our here, character yeah. this is what it is and yeah you're a young lad and but there's, it's a case of manning up very quickly you know we're here to win you know you hear him talking about going to battle going to war all these things that's what he wanted that's what he wanted he, he wanted you to man up quickly and realise where you are as you spoke about before a lot of people are in oh I've played for Manchester United now they're living in the clouds in the sky they're daydreaming there was none of that with Roy Keane. Again, I took it as a compliment because it's probably somebody who knew he could handle it and, and, and always handled it quite well. Yeah, there was times where he had a go. You'd think, oh, God, and you got a little bit down. The next day there, he was then to pick you back up and give you a compliment. Boom, you're back to normal. Given how much, I guess, you liked playing with him, how big an influence he was on you, you've just talked about him in glowing references. How did you feel when that did blow up to such proportion that he was forced to leave the club? Yeah, absolutely devastated and seeing the, the, how much it affected everybody, including Sir Alex Ferguson, how much that everyone respected and, and loved and, and admired and had learned from this, this great player. Forget, forget the leadership call. What an unbelievable player. The best first touch you've ever seen, unbelievable passer of the ball. People talk about talent, and I think first when people mention talent, they, they think about all oh, skills on the ball and that. Talent's epitomised by Roy Keane, you know, yeah, maybe don't do tricks or fancy things. The most dominant player on the pitch ran the game with his personality and his heart and desire. Would run through a brick wall. Unbelievable passer of the ball. Unbelievable stamina. Unbelievable first touch. Controlled and dictated the tempo of the game. That's what you call talent. That's the talent defined in a, in a long sentence without trying to be too specific. I think people have throwaway comments of talent, like see somebody do a trick or a fancy bit of skill and say, oh, he's really talented. It means nothing if you've not got those other things. That's all been forgotten. Without a doubt, of course it has. I think that we're all we're in a generation of Twitter and YouTube and 12-second clips. 
Nobody watches a game for 90 minutes anymore and watches what, how, what, how somebody can control and dominate a game and almost impact a game with the personality of will. And we didn't have just Joaquin who could do that. We had a whole team that could do that. You know, so for me, that's why we were the talented and the best, most best, well, the, and the best team around. Yeah, you've scored some big, important goals in your career. Um, winner against Chelsea, mm -hmm. and in their forty-match unbeaten run, two goals in the four-three win over City, two goals in a four-nil FA Cup demolition of Arsenal. We could go on. <laughs> Pick as a favourite out of those. The two goals against City are amazing because it was just a point where City was starting to starting to become a bit of a threat. Carlos Tevez had just moved there. Um, and what, the only gutting thing about those games is I should have scored the winning goals. So it should have been 3-2. Rio goes and messes around at the back and then it allows Michael Owen to become a hero. But I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll let him away with it. Um, but the Chelsea goal was massive in terms of... It was another. It was just off the back of the whole um, Roy Keane MUTV interview type thing. I was playing right wing. And um, yeah, there was a lot of pressure building. And it was a... Uh, you know, Sometimes you need moments. You need games, you need moments that just help you in your career. And that was a big moment because it stopped Chelsea. I'm playing right wing a position I'm not really accustomed to, but I know Cristiano's left wing who sets up the goal. So I have to do a little bit more cover on the right-hand side to allow him to stay forward a bit more on the left-hand side. And then I knew that, right, okay, become a threat with a goal-scoring threat in a different way by trying to get into the back post and score a few headers. And, and it worked out that day for me and I managed to score that goal against Chelsea, which eased a little bit of the pressure as we are talking about on me and the team at the time, really, and allowed us to grow and get a little bit of confidence going forward, which eventually results in us dominating and winning leagues for years to come. Don't want to stick on this for too much, but you also scored another great goal against City, but obviously we lost 6-1. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, people um, do reference that, and I think that. But that was the best goal of the day. It was the best goal of the day. Thanks, Helen. <laughs> glad you, glad you, glad you. And there was no sending that. offs that day. No, there wasn't. <laughs> no. I think there was in the first half, wasn't there? <laughs> Don't know. Don't know. <laughs> to be honest, that game probably my goal didn't help us in terms of how the result finished because at that stage I score and we're actually the better team in the game, and we're really taking the game to City. And we're almost sensing even with ten men, we're going to come back here. Uh, I think if you look at the context of that game in a 90 minutes, it's never a 6-1 result. Obviously, the disaster of what goes on in injury time is what lets us down badly. And uh, we were told in no uncertain terms. As well, it's probably I probably got told off for scoring that goal. I think after the game, <laughs> Sir Alex had a go at me in a roundabout way by saying, this guy goes and scores, and then you think you can go on and win the game, you know, type thing. But I think he was just... Really, really upset, as you can imagine, with yeah. the score finishing 6-1 and let us know that that will never happen again. And to play like that in the 90 minutes in injury time and concede three more goals is disastrous and ends up being a talking point and something that City can have over United. And, and that was what he was trying to send the message of the bigger consequences of losing a game 3-1 or 4-1 rather than 6-1. So it stuck with us definitely and it was a definitely a lesson learned. Yeah, I don't want to talk about City too much, but I do have a couple of questions because... I think the answer might be fascinating. At that time, after that, you know, the season of the 6-1 loss and Tevez has gone there, this is when City are really becoming the force that they are now. How aware in the main United dressing room were you of like the kind of money they were getting and spending? Did you ever, did you take it seriously when that first started happening? Like when they signed Rubinho? Because to everyone outside, it was all kind of a bit of a joke and everyone was making that joke that you obviously thought he was going to United. Like, is that something you talked about as a group or just sort of all ignored? No, you're aware of who your threats are in the league. And for us, the City just improved every year. At the beginning, you know, they, you could see there was an improvement and it wasn't the City of old and they were going to challenge you. We didn't see, really see them as a threat to the league. But the thing with City was on the power and the money and the players they had, 
was they improved every year. And we knew that that challenge was going to come at some point, and eventually it did come. And, um, you know, ultimately, when you've got that much money and that much power as a club, you, you, you can put yourself in a position to compete with anyone. You know, money talks when you sign fantastic players like they did. I still don't agree with all the little digs and the, the city is ours and all the banners and all the signs and all that. That's a step too far. But Manchester United is the biggest and best club. And although they've had success now, they're absolutely miles away from Manchester United in terms of size as a club and history as a club. You know, so, you know, they're doing well just now. And, you know, you've got to hold your hand up to them and, and say fair, fair play. They've got a fantastic manager, a fantastic squad. But in terms of the size of a club and an institution, they're nowhere near Manchester United and we'll be back, don't worry. Obviously, Sir Alex Ferguson is such a big part of that himself and Sir Matt Busby. Talk us through your relationship with Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, was there any favouritism? Oh, of course, yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, um, people will be really surprised. Sir Alex was um, fantastic with me, obviously, and a massive influence in my career, but it wasn't, it wasn't a case of talking. We were talking about Scotland and how great Scotland is every day. To be honest, I was treated the same as every other player and probably the only thing he did always have was whenever I swore, he didn't like it, but everyone else was allowed to swear. But if I swore on the training ground, I got told off every time. <laughs> what did you think? I have no idea. I don't know whether it's Scottish accent or whatever. Or I don't know, it was just something that he always did. So everyone else was allowed to swear. But as soon as I swear, it's like, hey, no swearing. I'll tell your mother. Well, that's just going to say, maybe his mum had, had a probably, word with you. Probably, mm -hmm. probably a little bit scared of my mum, who knows. Um, I'm low maintenance, a little bit what you alluded to before. So I was satisfied didn't have to talk to me every day. He knew what I was about. I got on with my job, what I was there to train hard every day, whatever instructions was given to me on the pitch, I followed out to the letter. And I was low maintenance. So, you know, Sir Alex was there for when I needed him and, and at the moments, but it wasn't as if we were in conversation every day. You know, I was just part of the squad like everyone else and just desperate to do well and to please Sir Alex. And, and you know, we, we all wanted to win for ourselves in the club, but we wanted to win for Sir Alex because of how much faith and how much belief he had in, his, in us all, and we wanted to repay him that. When he retired, was that when you all really realised as a group how influential he was? Because at the time, you're just living through it. That's all you've ever known when you've been at Manchester United. Then he leaves and you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think you... you you don't, you don't appreciate the genius or how good somebody is. And that was a norm for us. So all we known was Sir Alex Ferguson's management style, motivation style, tactical style. That's all we'd known. We hadn't known any different, you know, but you don't realise it. You do realise you're in the presence of greatness and a genius, but you don't realise how much of a genius he is. And you definitely, it's going to affect anybody. You're the greatest manager of all time leaving who can motivate people in a sentence who you didn't know what you were going to get whether that was a hairdryer treatment or a calm calculated one or two point tactical halftime analysis you know he had you on your toes at all time he knew everything about every individual in that dressing room and what made them tick he knew how to, what to say to us to make us go as individuals he knew what to say to make us respond to his teams he was just an absolute genius and and tactically fantastic as well and you know it's no surprise that you're going to suffer a, a drop after Sir Alex Ferguson because of just how good he is and you know what a man more than anything forget his management what, what an unbelievable person human being and was there for the players through me, you know through any circumstances that was going on in their lives especially me with my illness you know the 
the way he treated me and was there for me during that probably outweighs how great he was for me in my footballing career and that's well, that's why I hold him in such high regard. Would you say, I was going to come on to that later but we'll talk about it now, would you say that you probably became closer to him during that time? Well without a doubt yeah because I feel like before I was just you know I was a I was a Manchester United player the same as everyone else in that period that's when our relationship did become a lot closer because he was there for me irrelevant of football it was a personal you know somebody suffering with an illness and somebody you know trying to help them in every way possible and it became as he was you know forget you need to forget about football you have to get yourself well for the rest of your life for your family you know that's that was his points he used to try and hit home to me whether I fully listened to that I'm not sure because in my head I want to get back to playing football but without a doubt he was there for me every step of the way and gave me fantastic support to me and my family to everyone and again our probably our relationship became closer to everyone we used to think it was before that off the back of my illness without a doubt being diagnosed with ulcerative colitis i imagine was very difficult for obviously lots of reasons but from a football perspective i guess being out with an injury that's not football related not something you can control you can't like get in the gym and strengthen a muscle or something what was that like were you worried about how it would affect the football or was it more worried about how it would affect your personal life Everything really, yeah, probably more how it would affect my football, yeah. I'm just desperate to get back and probably, again, just just doing everything I could to get back, really. And, you know, probably not realising how ill and sick I was at times and trying to battle through it just from sheer stubborn determination. And ultimately, slowly but surely, the illness just was defeating me, basically. And I was trying everything. I was trying alternate medicines. I was trying changing my diet. I was trying all the all the medications and things provided tried everything you know every we resourced every opportunity me the club the doctors and and nothing worked and eventually i had to hold my hands up and say that this the illness is beating me and i need to do something about it which resulted in surgery and and it was terrible because all i'm thinking about is getting back playing you know i'm not letting this illness stop me living my dream especially in a point in my career where i was absolutely flying you know, I was just not willing to accept it and not let it beat me. And ultimately, I had to hold my hands up and do something about it. And it took me a while to get back and it cost me a big part of my career. But it is what it is. You know, I didn't really look back too much. I always just looked forward and, and was just determined to get back playing when people probably thought I would never get got, get back playing and was told to expect never to get back playing, you know, in no uncertain terms by a number of people. So again I didn't want to hear that I just wanted to get back playing football How hard were some of those days mentally for you? Did you stay away from the training ground? Um, watching the games and that I didn't find hard mentally um, mentally, I was just in the zone so I can't remember two occasions where I, again I was conscious of I'm not letting this beat me so I can't afford to go mentally although physically I was going and I was completely gone physically I knew if I'd went mentally I'd never get back so my mental attitude was a case of I'm not letting it happen. And having to wake up every morning and go, nope, not feeling sorry for yourself. Get up, get on with it, deal with it, find a way around it, do whatever I had to do that day to get through the day. And I did have that moment of waking. It was weird because you wake up every morning and you have that initial period of waking up where you think, you know, you start thinking all these nice thoughts, like great life, playing football. And then all of a sudden it hits you, you're going to have to face that day with the illness. And that's when you start going into, as you say, that depression. And I just didn't let it happen. 
I just, That's incredible, though. I just bounced up and said, I'm not going to... I think I would never have recovered if I'd let that happen, Helen. And luckily, I had a strong support from my family and that and my, my wife and kids and mum and dad and Sir Alex Ferguson. But I just knew that because I was suffering physically, if I'd have gone mentally, I would never have came back. Regardless of football, in terms of your overall health, how severe was it at its worst? Oh, yeah, it's life, it was life-threatening. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've rushed to hospital a number of times and you know, three or four days in hospital in Edinburgh, I can't even remember. And, you know, uh, consequences of the operations and the illness. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible illness, debilitating illness that num- thousands of people suffer with every day in this country and all around the world and suffer in silence because of the, because of the you know, the the embarrassing factors that come with it of running to the toilet and losing blood through going to the toilet and all these sorts of things, you know, and it's it's, it's horrible mentally. It's terrible. But yeah, yeah, for me, I just tried to fight it with everything I could, did possibly. And ultimately, I, I couldn't add to go down the surgical route, which comes with its own challenges and own problems and success rate of operations are, are really low for even for life quality and things like that. Never mind trying to get back to playing football, but I'd come to the, I was at the lowest of low. I had no other options, no other alternates. And that probably helped me get to that moment because then I was willing to accept surgery and then dealt with the challenges of coming back from it. It's amazing as well that you kept that so private for so long. Yeah. I think it was only the doctor and Sir Alex. Yeah. Those were the only two people that knew. Yeah. And I actually remember Johnny being like, Fletch hasn't been in training. He's not. And yeah. I, rem- I don't remember it vividly, but yeah. I just remember him saying at the time that you hadn't been around as much or you, know, you were in different times. But the fact that they'd kept that so low key for you obviously for you personally that was important but it says a lot about them as well that you were able to keep it private and try and deal with it yourself oh without a doubt because I think the feeling was always there's always a there's a period of about four or five months three four months where you're on a medication for us it was a case of right this medication is going to work so if we can keep it quiet for three or four months then I'll be back yeah then it's going to be fine the problem that happened was three or four months of that medication come back playing for a few months the medication hadn't worked, so I had to try the next one. So you always had these periods, and I think even the next one, the club have fought, and the manager, and we all thought, right, okay, this one's definitely going to work. And then it doesn't work. So it was almost like then people start asking questions, and then for me, I was the one who wanted to let it be known what I had. Yeah. Because I was the one who was lying to people and having to say to people, oh, I've got this, I've got that, I'll be back. I wasn't injured, and... and I was willing to accept. I wasn't bothered about the, the factors that came with people knowing what the illness was. So for me, it just made my life a lot easier. I think the manager and the doctor were a little bit more sceptical about that. But ultimately, they respected my wishes. And then once we let everyone know what it was, you've got to remember, people are really concerned about you, but everyone else has their own problems in their life. So you do get that initial concern and people are really worried about you. But ultimately, people have got their own battles, their own problems. And, they, you know, they, they, go back to, they go back to their own life and then they forget that you've got your thing. They know you're dealing with it. They're respectful of it. And then it's just a lot easier to, to, to get on with things and to deal with whatever I had coming up in front of me. When the news first broke, what was the reaction like from the public and also from inside the changing room? Well, again, football changing rooms are notorious for taking the mick and no boundaries and everything goes. Not one person took the mick out of me about my illness, which is amazing, really. And I, would have, I wouldn't have minded. I'm not, I'm, I don't take myself too seriously and I understand football banter and football dressing rooms. I would not have minded one bit if somebody had came up with a joke just to break the ice, but not one person did. And I think that, you know, a great bunch of lads, really, who had probably, again, when you look back, again, I'm in the bubble. 
you can physically see how much I'm suffering. You can see my face, you can see my weight gain, ups and downs, the consequences of uh, medication. The, you can see physically that I'm, you know, really, really suffering. So, you know, the lads are obviously know that I'm in pain and the last thing that they think they're not gonna they're not gonna take the mick out of me because they know how much I'm suffering and they know how bad the illness is. So again, a great dressing room and a great bunch of lads who, you know, I love and respect so much all of them great lads couldn't speak highly enough for every one of them honestly the best teammates and a big part of our success was because of that uh, right so 2008 Champions League final we win yeah but you were on the bench in the final yeah I guess did that, did that matter to you? Were you or were you just delighted to win the Champions League your squad your team have won the Champions League you know it's amazing you know, you, you realise that you weren't in a position to put yourself in the team for that, no problem. And you're doing your best to help the team in any way possible. So I just felt every much as part of that success from the moments I had played during the season and was just privileged to be there. And what an unbelievable night. But it did give me the determination of, well, we're getting back to the Champions League final and I'm going to be on the pitch when we do that. Which uh, half of that did happen. United were in the 2009 Champions League final. You had an absolutely stellar season. Mm-hmm. And then after a perfectly good tackle on Cesc Fabregas, yeah. you got sent off at 4-0 with like 10 minutes left. Yeah. Game was dead. Didn't need to, didn't need to do a, use a red card. Also, good tackle. Yeah. And you missed the Champions League final. Yeah. And for the next three years, I'm walking around saying, well, we'd have won the Champions League if Darren Fletcher had played. Oh, we definitely would have won the Champions League final. Have <laughs> I'm glad that's been confirmed. <laughs> no. Um, oh, there's lots of things on that night. It's just crazy. Um, should I just let... Cesc Fabregas just go through and score because of the result in the game it wouldn't have mattered but we trained in all the build up for the semi-final of staying with Arsenal's one-twos and I get a specific task of following Cesc Fabregas usually I always got a specific task in the big games of stopping somebody or having a real influence and that was my role that night and I do keep harking back should I've just let him go through and score but I couldn't I wasn't even thinking of him I was just thinking of stopping him and I'm, yeah, you're thinking well if you let Fabregas go through and score you've not done your job does that mean you're not going to play in the final I didn't I knew I'd made a perfectly good tackle um, when the ref shows the red card I'm absolutely devastated I go off the pitch there was talks of you know yeah, getting rescinded and all this stuff I spoke to my dad very quickly after the game and he in no uncertain terms, and a true Scottish straight to the point said, it's not going to happen. Forget it out of your head. You're not, they're not going to rescind it. You're not going to play in the Champions League final. You have to now concentrate on helping man win the league because we started to win the league that year. And my sisters are devastated. So I'm trying to be on the phone. My kids are too young to understand. I'm trying to calm down my sisters. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm okay. And I just dealt with it as quickly as possible. Um, there's a one instant in the game, actually, I've only seen recently I want to bring up is, is Rio's reaction. He's devastated. He's up to referee at the time. But uh, Ryan Giggs, who didn't start that game and who ended up starting the Champions League final, who maybe if I'd not been sent off, might not have started the Champions League final. We never know what team Strats Ferguson would play. But he's not thinking about himself in that moment. When the final whistle goes, Ryan Giggs is around the referee, basically saying to him what are you doing sending off Darren Fletcher how what are you, you know berating him almost and this is Ryan Giggs who's just qualified the team have just got to a Champions League final you know he should be celebrating and rightly so like the rest of the lads were you know got to a Champions League final he should be celebrating with the fans celebrating with each other and he's in the referee's ear almost saying to him why did he send me off and berating him for sending me off and maybe trying to plead with him to do something about it and I just think that speaks volumes of a leader and a guy like Ryan Giggs in that moment wasn't thinking about himself, was just thinking about the effect that might have on me or the team or 
or just how wrong the decision was. I wasn't thinking about his own personal goal, his glory. So I just actually only noticed it the other day when it popped up on MUTV and when I watched it. And I just wanted to make the point of talking about how good a dressing room we had and how good leaders we had and how good people we had in that dressing room. Were you that team spirit that you had? Are you able to recognise that now, even when you're looking at other football teams, that that could not be replicated? Certainly in a team that you'd been playing in since then? Well, you know, I've been in some good dressing rooms, some bad dressing rooms since then, but without a doubt, that t- that cannot be... Re- we were we were immature, winning, best mates, camaraderie, banter, socialised together in different ways than the previous generations. We were all best mates going into work every day. We were there for each other. We had each other's back. We had different characters, different personalities. We had the, you know, we had the godfathers of the class of 92 who, you know almost like, you know, controlled the dressing room for one. And then you had the, the the wild ones, myself, Rio, Wayne, you know, Johnny, all those lads who basically were like the hub of the dressing room. We had the fantastic foreign lads, almost captained by Patrice Evra. Great characters who all came together. And honestly, I look back on some of the best times of winning and just being day-to-day with those guys every day was like unbelievable. You bounced into training. You wanted to be there. We could have been there for hours. You know, playing PSPs together, PlayStations together, cards together. We were constantly in each other's company. We never got fed up of each other. Was there a point that you... I I mean, I guess this is as Sir Alex Ferguson retires. Did you become conscious that that team that reached three Champions League finals in four years started breaking apart and people were leaving and that maybe that spirit didn't exist anymore because those characters weren't there? Yeah, slowly but surely. I think there's no doubt that we probably needed some players to come into it as you always do you always have to add players to improve you and there's always going to be a transition from certain players that happens but without a doubt the the, the more the squad was ripped apart I knew it was going to be even more difficult to get Manchester United back to the success that we had because the biggest thing Sir Alex Ferguson when he signs players is ability is important of course it is you've got to be the right personality and character to play for Manchester United your personality your character sometimes you're actually better having a lad with a better ca- character and personality and determination who's got a little bit less ability than the lad with better ability because that carries you such a long way that's why Sir Alex Ferguson did so much research and knew everything about our families our mums dads our family backgrounds because for him character and personality matched with talent is more important talent alone without that you don't survive at Manchester United or you're not there very long and Sir Alex didn't get many wrong and that's why the dressing room worked so well wasn't there one um, I think one of his later team talks I'm not sure whether it was the last one he was able to go around the dressing room and spoke personally about you as a person and your family background tell us about that yeah exactly it was a team talk I think it was near the end of his reign where he he literally went around the dressing room and he spoke about what we were as people people and where it came from and he spoke about he knew about our mum and dad's backgrounds and where they come from and how that name 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 them knew their jobs knew where they what countries have been from knew their struggles knew what defined them as people parents both sides and how that molded the person in that dressing room and how he knew that and how he knew that putting all these pieces together he knew the character and our backgrounds and, and he said he'd say, look to the left, look to the right, look who's beside you. Could you have asked could you ask for anybody else to be beside you? Is he gonna have your back? Is he gonna have your back? If you make a mistake, is he gonna be there for you? And we all looked around the dressing room where Sir Alex told these you know, spine tingling stories of our family's backgrounds, our mum and dad's backgrounds, our backgrounds of how we got there. And it was just like how you can't go out and win that game or 
whatever occasion it was, I can't remember specifically, but you could talk about Sir Alex all day. He's just an absolute genius. You know, we could reminisce for hours and he'll never be, there'll never be another, never no. ever be another because he's so unique and from a different generation and, and, you know, as a manager, you know, you talk now about all these different roles. Sir Alex Ferguson was everything built into one, director of football, scout, manager, motivator, tactician. You know, he did, he did six people's jobs in one, really. Had you ever prepared mentally to leave the club? Like when you saw some teammates maybe yeah. leave in the last few years before you did, did you ever think, oh, that's not going to be me? Or? No, I never thought like that. I didn't know what my career path was going to be. I always knew that I wanted to play most games or what would be a big part of it. So if I knew if I'd come a point where I wasn't playing as much as I'd like, then I would probably look to leave because I, I, I wanted to play football. And that's, no, I've loved Manchester United and you have accept role times you're not in the team, but... In the, in the main, if I felt like I didn't contribute or wasn't contributing, then I knew that I would possibly leave. I didn't ever think like, oh, I don't want to be anywhere else and I want to be at Manchester United for the rest of my career. I didn't, I, that would have been great. Of course it would have been, but it has to come with playing the right amount of games and having the influence that I wanted to have. So, and I kind of knew coming back from my illness, I was never going to be the same player. Although I actually initially did really well when I first came back, I knew I wasn't the same player that I was. And it's difficult as you get older and you're not the same player you were to stay at Manchester United. Plus, the Manchester United that I knew wasn't there anymore. So that's why it became easier to leave. It would have been a lot more difficult to leave. I was talking about the dressing room and the atmosphere and the thing we had under Sir Alex Ferguson. I think that would have been really, really difficult to leave at that point because... There was no better. And if he had been the yeah. one telling you to go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, if I'm Scottish, he's never going to do <laughs> no. that. Come on, Helen. Come Obviously on, Helen. So you look after your own, I get it. <laughs> so before, before, you, before you did eventually leave United, David Moyes and Louis van Gaal came in. What was it like working with them in, I guess, in the wake of Sir Alex Ferguson leaving? Well, David Moyes, I never got back around the team until around about Christmas time. And actually... The team was in a real bad place and there was a lot of pressure building that, that. But when I got back in the team, my performances were actually really, really good. And I still look back on them now. And although the team was maybe struggling, the results weren't fun. My actual personal performance, I think I played about 15 games for the back end of the season. And honestly, I don't know why, whether it was sheer adrenaline or just the joy of being back or what was carrying me through those games, but my f performances were really good. Unfortunate thing was I break my foot, I break my toe on the last day of the season that season. So... I wanted to carry on building my strength and my stamina and all that over the summer. I didn't want to stop. And in the end, with a broken toe, I had to stop for like four or five weeks. So I feel like I lost a lot of the momentum I had. I Louis Van Gaal enjoyed. I enjoyed in terms of his tactical output in the game and learned a lot and um, started the season in the team, was named one of his, I don't know, he had about five captains. I was one of them anyway. But I really enjoyed it. But it, was just come up, it came to a point where I wasn't playing. And it wasn't the same Manchester United of old. And I'd battled so hard to get back into the team and, and to be to become a professional footballer again. And I, I wasn't playing, so I was. I just wanted to play. I just wanted to play. Stage, yeah. I just wanted to play. And, and I felt like I was too young to accept the, the good guy in the dressing room moments here and there. Maybe if I was 34, 33, 34, I might have accepted it. But I've seen at my age, 30, almost 31, that I could go somewhere and have an, almost like another part of my career. And eventually I did go and do that at West Brom and, and played every minute of every game there. You know, I think I had a, I think I played 97 games out of 99, you know, I had an unbelievable run and I look back on it and say, even coming back through my illness, it's something I'm really, really proud of and enjoyed, enjoyed my time there, enjoyed every minute of it. 
Were you emotional when you left United? We spoke to Maisie about this and he kind of had a bit of a, a, well, a few tears in his eyes um, when he got told he was being released. Did you have that moment at all or did it come a little bit later on? Did you have a moment where you had a bit of a no. mental breakdown about no, it? No, not at all. Emotional and breakdown? No, to be honest, I, it was me. I went to see Louis van Gaal and he was really shocked when I asked him to leave. And he couldn't understand it. I'm like, well, I'm not playing. so. <laughs> um, but... He didn't want me to leave, but he respected my wishes. Obviously, said to him about, I'm not playing. I've just come back from this illness where I've been told I'm never going to play again. And, you know, I love Manchester United. I want the club to be back. But ultimately, I don't see me playing much under you, which is fine. No problem at all. But having come through everything I've come through, the chance of playing football week in, week out was too much for me to turn down. Um, Did you speak to anyone before you went in and made that decision? I, I spoke to a number of people. I spoke to Alex Ferguson, I spoke to players, I spoke to team. Not that Alex Ferguson told me to leave, to leave. Of course he never, but he gave me advice. And it's about what he felt that I needed. And I felt like I, I just needed to play. And maybe in hindsight I could have stayed and maybe played more. I probably might have, would have. And, but I was just, I don't know. I just felt like it was time for me to go. And, um, and I still think it was the right decision because of what I went on to do, especially at West Brom playing all those games and being captain and being a being a part of taking West Brom from relegation to where we finished and where we ended. I know they ultimately did get relegated again, but that period while I was there was really, you really... You left before then, though? I just got out <laughs> before then. No, but I do, I do feel like that period of when I was there was really, really successful and I enjoyed every minute and it was, it was almost justified from surely the amount... I think I went on to play... 116. You were the eighth player in Premier League history to play 100 consecutive Premier League yeah, games. Yeah, and I think that outside of goalkeepers, I think my record's only second to Frank Lampard in terms of from outfield players of consecutive games, which when somebody tells you you're never going to play again yeah, and you've had the debility and illness, to come back and do that, it's, you know, it's something that I'm really proud of. Mm -hmm. And played against United seven times since you left, uh, five for West Brom and two is Stoke. What did that feel like? Um, strange. Well, the first one must have been strange. Were they all strange? Well, the first one's really strange because it's back at Old Trafford with West Brom and we need to win. And I make a conscious effort, right? Don't make any mistakes. Don't walk into the wrong dressing room. Do all that, blah, blah, blah. So I'm all right. I do all that. And I'm captain. So I walk into the tunnel first and I stand on the left-hand side, which is where I've always stood at Old Trafford. And that's the Man United side. So... All the West Brom lads follow me like they do. Players are sheep. They just follow the captain. You know what you're doing. <laughs> and then I, I'm just in the zone thinking of the game. And then the Man United team walk out and they're like, other side Fletch. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I had <laughs> one job. I had one job. <laughs> I was just in the zone. I'm like, I've never stood at any other side of the tunnel at Old Trafford. Um, and match of the day, like to show it. And thankfully for us, we went on to win the game. And, and it was a big part in keeping West Brom in the league that season. I had a really nice moment after the game. Basically, every player's gone off the pitch and I went over and clapped the West Brom fans who were on the far side. And I, and I went around and clapped the United fans and a, none, a lot of people were still behind at the time and gave me a real standing evasion. Because I've never really had a send-off from anywhere I've been. You know, I was at United for 12 years. You know, you technically are in testimonial territory and, and all the clubs I've left and everything I've done, I've never really had that. I said, not that I want it. No, but that's you. Yeah, and, that's and, I, saying, and I could so probably couldn't. I could probably couldn't think anything worse than having a send off or something like that. But at the same time, that was like my little moment that I really, really enjoyed playing well in the game. West Brom winning. I know that's not great for Manchester United, but having that moment, going around the stadium almost on my own, 
and the fans clapping and me clapping the fans was a really really nice moment and something I do you know thankful for and I really really enjoyed that moment yeah how do you think you felt in terms of your relationship to the fans because you became like a cult icon yeah like everybody loved you everyone was always talking about like want Darren Fletcher like the 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 constant argument of well we'd have won a Champions League if Darren Fletcher was playing like we don't say that about anybody else did you feel like there was a closest? Do you feel like that was always there or do you feel like it came at a point? I feel like I had to earn that. I feel like I had it very difficult, rightly or wrongly, in the beginning. I feel like there was the accusations of being Scottish and the Roy Keane interview. It wasn't... So I, I almost had to... I probably had to work even harder to earn the respect. But I was willing to do it. And I got there in the end and it didn't stop me. So in some ways, I think fan, fans are maybe a little bit more... I get a lot of, we were really harsh on him. And look what, we were probably too harsh. So there's a lot of that. But every time I meet Man United fans, are fantastic with me. I feel like I have a, a good thing with the Manchester United fans, which is great for me, of course. Again, I think it just comes from they recognise what I did on the pitch. Didn't play for myself. Played for the team. Willing to sacrifice myself for the greater good of the team. Willing to be a good teammate who followed instructions and, and, and came up good in big games because nerves were never a thing for me and um, I enjoyed and relished the big games and it and seemed to suit my style of play where I really came to the fore and there's nothing better than playing in big games for Manchester United that's what you dream of so I just embraced the challenge and got excited by it and I was determined to show people that I'm a good player but I never did it by sacrificing the greater good of the team so it was always in, in those conditions and eventually you get there maybe it takes a little bit longer to get recognition from that but it definitely leaves a longer impression when you do get there. Do you think it's harder when you're a homegrown player to get that recognition? Yeah, without a doubt. I think that um, I think people. It's always great to get the new signings and and this and that. I think that well, when you're a young player, the Man United fans see your whole journey. So this, you're going to have dips in form. You're still yeah. learning the game while you're trying to win for Manchester United. So they see your bad times and they see your good times. Yeah. With other players, you get them in their prime. You've not seen their bad times. They've not seen their times of struggle and still learning the game and being trying to define themselves, trying to get physically stronger. You know, so they don't see other people's journey. With young players at football clubs, you see their your journey whether they break onto the scene and they're fantastic. Of course, there's going to be a dip in performance. They're young. They're still learning the game. They're still trying to develop. But then it's they come again and players do come again. So you think it's just you see our journeys. The, the highs, the lows, you see everything. But I do think you get there in the end and the respect comes in the end. It's easy to sign a 27-year-old. You've not seen his tough times in his younger parts of his mistakes, career. Yeah. yeah, you've not seen all his mistakes. You're seeing the end product of an experienced player who knows what he's doing week in, week out. You're so humble in reference to your career, your approach to football. You're almost totally unlike the concept of a footballer. But if you were in the transfer market now, given that prices are insane and you left United for free, where do you imagine you would sit? In terms of as a... Value. Value? You, yeah, what do you think you'd go for? <laughs> An absolute prime Darren Fletcher. <laughs> That's a good question. Prices are big nowadays, They are they? big. Prices are very big now. Also, uh, Roy Keane recently valued Ryan Giggs at two billion. Yeah, but... Ryan, and you were in the same team. So. Yeah, no, no, not two billion. Not, Ryan Giggs is phenomenal. Like, can I just have a little bit of time on Ryan Giggs? I think for me, <laughs> Paul Scholes and Roy Keane, for me, because I'm a central midfielder, they're the ones that played in my position. So, you know, I focus on them a little bit more and they were unbelievable. The best players of all time for me in terms of like Premier League, central midfielders, Manchester United. But Ryan Giggs, 
to do what he did for so long as a left winger, to then reinvent himself as a central midfielder, it'll never be achieved again, that what he did, that longevity of that ability and how good he was. People don't respect and understand how good Ryan Giggs, even, even though we talk about him, people talk about his longevity, which we do, but how good he was during that longevity is unbelievable. And another thing, an angry Ryan Giggs is the best player. <laughs> no two ways about it. When Ryan Giggs had a point to prove and a bee in his bonnet and was a little bit peed off because people were doubting him or he wasn't in the team for a couple of games, oh, that Ryan Giggs is a different animal completely and is literally the best player. I can see the stare now. Yeah. <laughs> and stare, uh, you're, yes. you're doubting me. You're, you're, you're questioning me. Yeah. All right, that Ryan Giggs is a whole different level and somebody... Listen, transfer, transfer... I'm not going to put a price on my head just now. I've if never, you were a manager, though, and do you know what, I've, how much would you buy yourself for? <laughs> oh, I'd, I'd be first name on the team sheet. You know what I mean? 50 million, 50 million. I, th I think that's I've very never, cheap. I've never had a transfer. So I've literally... United... I had six months left on my deal. They let me go for free because of the service I'd gave to the club. West Brom had come to the end of my contract and an extension and I go to Stoke for free. So I'm a, I'm a free transfer all round. <laughs> so I, I just have to be a free transfer. If you could go back and experience one game or one moment of your career, what would that be for you? A big turning point in my career came Roma 7-1. Seven, seven one. Seven one. Mm -hmm. um, had got suspended from the first leg. Uh, I remember... My kids had just been born. So I remember the night before the game, I'm up during the night with the twins, feeding the kids, you know, thinking I've got a big Champions League quarterfinal, <laughs> to, to, you know, tonight or the next day. Um, and I don't know, it just seemed to be a game that it, everything just clicked for me. My performance clicked, the result of the team clicked. I'd got myself a little bit physically stronger from gym work and all that. I'd started to just feel, yeah, you know, I've got a little bit extra speed, a little bit extra power. I've come through a little bit of a difficult period. I know what it is now to be a Manchester. I've been really moulded now, I feel like, and that game almost gave me a real confidence boost going forward, and I enjoyed that match just from everything about it, the occasion, the result, and how I played in the game. And I really do think I'd become a father as well, as well. So I was just going to say, we're not just celebrating the fact that yeah, you were able to play well with no sleep. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I think it just came to a point where it was like, that's probably the first time as well that I realised there's more to life than football in a weird way although I'm really intense on in football it gives, puts things in a perspective yeah, you come home and you don't have time to think about the match exactly and I probably did that too much when I was younger where I came home and analysed everything too much and got too caught up in everything when you come home and you've got kids it takes your mind off football for a brief moment which was maybe what I needed and at that moment as well I'm thinking you know I changed my hair as well I got rid of the mullet because I'm like I'm a father now, I can't go around with a stupid haircut, which I look back on regret. And I only kept it because the lads used to hammer me for it. So I was like, I's not giving in to everyone. <laughs> so, so the mullet staying, you know, it was almost a case of it, it wound up my teammates, so that's even more so the reason to have it. And then Wayne Rooney used to try and grow one, but obviously his hair is not great, so he never managed to do it. Um, no, I think I just became a man, mm -hmm. and I think it all comes around becoming a, becoming a father, that game, how I felt coming through a little bit of a difficult period and then from that moment I feel like my career at United just went on really progressed quite well and you were young enough when you had them for them to be able to look back and have those memories as well of the, your dad playing yeah exactly and it's, it's nice to see you know when the games are replayed on MUTV I'm trying to get them sit down and see look Look how, look how good the player was they're like dad it's alright <laughs> so we don't want to watch it dad I like watching the clips on YouTube so what's next for you 
Um, next for me will definitely be involved in football. Do my coaching badges just now. I really want to become a football a manager. Yeah. I feel like it's something I've always thought about doing. Something I've always wanted to do. I've had I, do, I have had my doubts on what impact it'll have on my family life in terms of how intense it is and how tense, intense you have to be and the scrutiny and why put yourself through it. And I have gone through that, but I thought to myself, I need to put myself through it. I need to try it. It's something that I feel like you'll never, you never know. But it's something that I feel like I could potentially be good at. I'm not ready yet. I do feel like I've got a lot to learn and I want to speak to and go to and experience as many places as possible. And you'll never be fully ready when you make the jump to management, when you get the opportunity, but I want to be as ready as possible. So I want to go through that transition. I love football. I love everything to do with football. Um, I keep a keen eye on games, on players. I watch everything. I'm like a sponge. I want to observe, uh, absorb as much information and, and how football progresses, how it changes with different times, tactics, styles, style of referee and everything. Football's constantly changing. You know, people are constantly changing and you have to be relevant and you have to stick with, get with the times, but keep those old school values. And I'm, you know, I feel like I'm in training to become a manager. Do you have targets? Because we've talked about Ryan Giggs a lot today, former teammate, manager of his country in Wales, another former teammate, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Well, no different to being a player. I want, when I wanted to be a player, I wanted to play for the biggest club in the world and best club in the world. And that's what I set my sights on. And I'm, I fortunately managed to do that at Manchester United. So when I stake my steps on the management ladder, my goal is to become Manchester United manager because that's a pinnacle for me. Nothing tops that, nothing's bigger. Whether you get there or not, it's a different story. There's only one person. There's not that many manager jobs around, as you realise. There's, there's you know, thousands of players who play, but there's not many managers' jobs around. And Manchester United's the biggest job for me uh, in the world. Obviously, it's a long, long time away, and I hope it's of years of success of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and then eventually he's, he's had enough, and I've put myself in a position where it might be me who comes after that. That's the dream come true. But for me... When I get on that management ladder, it's about being the best you can be. And for me, Manchester United is a pinnacle. Whether it happens or not remains to be seen. There's probably a great, a good chance it probably doesn't happen, but I'm going to give it a good go. All right, well, I think that's the perfect place to leave it. Darren, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Am I paying for lunch? <laughs> no. It's on us. There it was. That was our chat with Darren Fletcher before he was appointed uh, technical director at the club. And he told us he wants to be the manager one day. Maisie, could you see that happening? Uh, I, well, I hope it's not for a long time. Yeah. Because uh, if that means that Ollie's successful. Mm -hmm. But um, I think I think any player who goes into the coaching side of it one day wants to become a manager. And what better club to become the manager at? Absolutely. You know, you, you'd wish him well, as you would everybody coming to the club. But at the moment, Ollie's there. But is backroom staff at the moment so which is great um, he also spoke about how and I guess you'll you'll appreciate this how when he made his debut it wasn't just the manager or say his family it was every coach and I guess every teammate and everyone that had helped shape him and get him to making that first appearance for the club and getting on the pitch uh, is that yeah. something you felt when, when you first played for truthful I, I never thought of it that way I just thought not selfishly but I think, I think the way Fletch mentions it is that it's not just about the end product. You know, everything that you sacrifice as a player growing up, as a kid, your parents travelling all over for Fletcher would be Scotland and coming down to England. You know, those rainy Sunday mornings and Saturday mornings and through hail and snow and all that sort of stuff. The mileage, 
and I look, I look back now at my parents and appreciate what they did for me to get to, even just to get to Blackburn as a as a schoolboy. But then your coaches, how they develop you, the hard work that you have to put into, and then the final thing is, I suppose it's quite easy that the manager manager turns around and says, right, you're playing on Saturday because he's seen the end product, how good you are. And he trusts you to go to take that next step. But the story behind it to get to that point with some, not just Fletchers, but some of the lads we've had on the podcast have been incredible, incredible journeys. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm. What a lovely answer. It was a lovely answer. I'm good at this, you know. Um, of he said, uh, which I thought was a really funny line, that he's become a better player since he missed out on the Champions League final because people always say if Darren Fletcher had played in the Champions League final, we would have won. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good way of looking at it, isn't it? But I'm sure... You know, and I was absolutely. This is where it's wrong that you see challenges on pitches, and it was a fantastic challenge down at Arsenal, and it didn't really have to make it because we was already through on the goals. But the player he is, you know, put his life on the line for the club, and to miss out on a final was, well, for me, looking at him, you know, was um, was a nightmare for him, but. Yeah, I suppose I suppose Fletch can look at it and say, "Yeah, if I'd have played." And when you've got the fans saying the same thing, it's a great little accolade, I should say. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Uh, right, that's it for this week. Uh, what we will do though is we'll read a few emails because you sent us some, and it would be a ridiculous waste of time not to read some out. So we'll start with Omar Khatib, who says, "Hi guys, what an amazing job you've been doing. Love this podcast. Never miss an episode. I love the fact that you've got Maisie on board. Having someone who's actually played for the club." and won and dominated the league with us adds a special flavour. I especially enjoyed Patrice and Dimmy's episode. Epic. I'm Omar from Egypt, and I don't think you guys realise how big United is here. The fan base is amazing. Truly the biggest club in the world. If you give us a shout-out, that would be grand. Go Egypt Reds, I guess. Omar Sharif, there you go, pal. There we are. Um, Who's Omar Sharif? That's what it's called. No, he's not. Omar Khatib. Who's Omar Sharif? All right. Egyptian film television actor. That's why that's why I did the whistle. Very cultured. Of course, you must know Omar Sharif. He's 83, mate. We don't <laughs> I don't care if he's 83. He had films in the 70s, 60s. All right, well there you go. There's your answer. I know, but you'll have looked at old films in years gone by, surely. Omar Sharif was a great. He was brilliant as being a cowboy. Doctor Zhivago. Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, see, see, legendary films, not all this crap that's on now. Spider-Man 6 and whatever, Deadpool. Oh, he was actually in Spider-Man 6. (laughs) (laughs) I've finished his emails because you two are insane. He finishes, lots of love, guys. Thank you for what you're doing. Best. I like that he called you, he said you had a special flavour, amazing. Yeah, beef. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I love beef flavour. And Duncan Brett says, Hi United Podcast team, just listened to the Albert Morgan podcast and loved it. Proper old tales going back to the Busby days. Albert's accent alone had me cracking up. I was born in Longsight and I'm a lifelong United fan, but lived in Sydney for 20 years. I'm now confined to late night, early morning games and lots of podcasts, of course. I only recently came across your podcast, but highly recommend it and have sent it to my network. It has a good mix of guests and banter and Maisie cackling really adds to it. Oh, Maisie, getting all the love today. I am now planning to go through your back catalogue to catch up on things. I love listening to stories of players, staff, recent and old, and the tales that they have. Keep up the good work, Duncan. Well, Duncan, you don't have to go all the way back because we're bringing some old ones forward. Say, Dunk. Yeah, thank you, Duncan. Right, that's it, Thanks for uh, doing this. It's been laughing it. 
Yeah, it's been good. Yeah. Uh, right, that's it for this week. Remember, the best place to listen to our podcast is over on the Official United app because if you register your email, you can watch the full episodes for free. So when we've sat down and chatted to people, you can see it all happen. There's your usual listening option too if you just want to listen, if you're out walking the dog or whatever. Remember, you can write to us at unitedpodcast.mainlight.co.uk. That address is in the notes as always. Until then, have a lovely week. Yeah.